Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Welcome to the documentary in one from Ireland. On Sunday, the 8th of January, 1979, 50 people died when a massive oil tanker exploded at Whitty Island in West Cork. The trauma of that event for those involved and the wider community still lingers. Now, over 40 years later, we piece together the dramatic story of a night that will never be forgotten. Narrated by Donal O'Hurley, this is Fire in the Sky. On November the 24th, 1978, a huge tanker the length of three football pitches and carrying 110,000 tonnes of crude oil set sail from Saudi Arabia. Owned by the French oil giant Total and registered in Le Havre, the crew is all French. Over the next few weeks, the 11-year-old oil tanker makes her way towards the west coast of Portugal, but rough seas and high winds mean that she's eventually diverted to the oil terminal operated by Gulf Oil at Whitty Island in County Cork. It was to be a most fateful change of course for the crew of the ship, the workers at the terminal, and the people of the local town, Bantry. What was about to happen cost 51 lives and devastated both families and the community alike. Once more, the peace and the beauty of Bantry Bay has been shattered by yet another oil tanker disaster. Today, the bay is the scene of an oil tanker fire which has claimed 49 lives. It became known as the Whitty Island disaster and it culminated in two huge multinationals, Total and Gulf, blaming each other, whilst families, then and still now, search for the truth of what really happened. Out there in the bay, the still smouldering remains of the French tanker Belgeus, which exploded in two in the early hours of this morning. What caused that explosion and where does responsibility lie? And could it happen again? These are questions which still remain unanswered. On Thursday the 4th of January 1979, the Betelgeuse finally arrived into Bantry Bay. By Saturday evening, she's moored at the jetty on Whitty Island and begins pumping her load of crude Arabian oil onto Whitty Oil Terminal. By Sunday afternoon, almost 60,000 tonnes of oil has been pumped out of her tanks and around the same time, down in Goline, Michael Kingston is celebrating his fourth birthday with his family, including his dad, Tim Kingston. My name's Michael Kingston and I'm the son of Tim Kingston. I remember that day distinctly because... It was my fourth birthday, and obviously it was celebrated at my home in Goline. And all the family were there, my father, my uncle, and my aunt, aunts, and 
we were enjoying ourselves and I remember I was given a toy helicopter by my father and I remember distinctly him playing with it with my uncle and it getting stuck in a tree. I remember the happiness of, of, of the day so in a way it's a, a lot of people see it as a sad story that it was my birthday but you know it was one of the happiest days that I can remember so in a, in a funny way I was lucky that I had such a, a wonderful day that day. It's 6pm and Michael's dad has taken the toy helicopter out of the tree. Now he prepares to leave for work. Tim works for Gulf Oil and in 1969 they purchased land on Whitty Island to open a new oil tank farm. It meant they could offload hundreds of thousands of tonnes of crude oil in a day onto the island for storage. Whitty Island lies in Bantry Bay. It's three miles long and about a mile wide. The island is home to 12 gigantic oil storage tanks, which can hold over 7 million barrels of oil. Situated about two miles offshore from Bantry Town, access to Whitty is only by boat. Tim Kingston's wife, Mary, can remember her son's fourth birthday too. He was a pollution control officer and he was anxious to get a shore job. So he spent quite a lot of time at home. He went in when the tankers would come in with the oil. Tim and Mary live in Goline, a village near Mizzen Head, about a half hour's drive from Bantry. He was a, a shy kind of man, very reserved and calm and cool in all occasions. We had three children, Mary Bernadette, Michael, Timothy and Nora Marie. This was their holiday home here. We extended the house and this is where we lived. Tim did quite a bit of travelling, you know, on and off, but always returned back home here. Tim was as happy as Larry going to work. He had changed his shift because one of them wanted to go, his wife wanted to go to the sales in Cork to cash his sale. So Tim stood in for him that night. You know, that's life, I suppose. It's 7pm on this calm but cold January Sunday evening and Tim is en route to Bantry where he'll join his co-workers on Whitty. The jetty was positioned just off the island for safety reasons and because of the deep water needed for these huge oil tankers coming into the bay. There was originally a gangway, a sort of footbridge connecting the jetty and the island, but Gulf Oil had removed it. With access only by boat, this means that in essence when you're on the jetty, you're trapped. 400 metres from land. And Tim Kingston's work means that he'll be spending most of his night on this jetty. Two tugs were kept close by in case a fast escape was needed. But crucially today, on January the 7th, 1979, these two tugs have been moved to the other side of the island. There's a platform on the jetty known as Dolphin One, which gives open access to the sea. However, this access had not been maintained and there was no way off that jetty. The Betelgeuse is not in good condition. It's visibly ageing above water, but it's below deck in the tanks that store the oil where the real problems lie. Some of these tanks are badly compromised. Her crew consists of 41 Frenchmen and one French woman, the wife of the ship's baker. They've all just spent Christmas at sea. Tonight, they're going to get a full night's sleep, having offloaded all of their crude oil cargo. There is, however, another 40,000 tonnes of Arabian light oil still in those tanks, on board, beneath them as they sleep. Before 8pm, Tim boards a small boat at Bantry Pier to take him and the other corkmen he's on shift with to Woody Island. 
On the island is a team of men whose job it is to ensure the safety of the workers as these huge consignments of oil are delivered into the vast tanks on Whitty. Brian McGee was there that night, the pump man. It's 8pm as he starts his shift. My name is Brian McGee. My job title on Whitty Island was assistant pump man. I went to sh on shift as normal and it was reasonably quiet. The, the shipping was slack, so it would have taken pressure off. Things were good and everything we'd done, our normal duties, and, and that was it. The oil business is 24-7 and Tim and his colleagues will work through the night. Brian McGee is on the island and with him are John Downey, a fellow pumpman, James Currens and Patrick O'Donnell. Also on the island was John Connolly, who served a crucial role. He was the dispatch controller, the man whose job it was to wait and watch over everything from the control tower at the high point of the island. If anything bad was to happen, his job was to raise the alarm immediately and call for help. The first three hours of Tim Kingston's shift go as normal. His job is as a pollution control officer, so he's constantly checking to ensure there are no leaks from the ship or from the large pipes on the jetty, whose valves to the island have now been closed off fully. Normally, if they were shipping in, you'd be kept well busy. We turned back to our base, was in the powerhouse. We had a mess room come off us there. It's 11pm and most of the French crew on board the vessel are asleep by now. Tim Kingston has been working on the jetty alongside the Betelgeuse and makes a call to his wife Mary back in Goline. I spoke to him that night. He phoned me at um, around 11. And it was a cold night, but it was a lovely night. It was flat calm because I looked out. I opened my bedroom window that night as I was getting into bed, something I never did and looked out and kind of said, gosh, it's lovely and calm. What a lovely night for Tim working. It's 20 minutes to midnight. Tim Kingston is back at work. Brian McGee has brought a newspaper to John Connolly in the control room. Whitty Island is also home to a small, close-knit community, about 50 residents, and the nearest house to the oil terminal is only a few hundred yards away. It's owned by the O'Learys, and their son, Tim, remembers the night well. I suppose the first thing I remember is my sister Mary calling my father and saying, there's something wrong in Gulf. She had uh, gotten up in the light and she saw the smoke because the lights of the oil terminal would, would shine in the window of our house. So she saw the smoke, so my father got up immediately and he looked out the window and he knew there was something wrong. Got my other brother James and they went down across the road from the house and down two fields where they had a line of sight. Although they didn't know it, the O'Learys were witnessing the beginning of what would become a catastrophic blaze. It's now between 31 and 32 minutes past midnight. We know these times and what happens next because of a tribunal that would be set up in later months. At the moment, the fire is small and localised. There's a distant thunder as the fire starts and the French crew on board are woken from their sleep. Most begin to get dressed and get out of their sleeping quarters. But, as of yet, no alarm has been raised, either on the ship or, crucially, from the Gulf Oil Watchtower on Whitty Island. Dispatcher John Connolly is not in the watchtower, so no alarm is raised and no help is en route. It's ten minutes since the fire started and it's really beginning to gather pace now. The sea on both sides of the ship is beginning to burn. Tim Kingston's wife, Mary. I then got a phone call around a quarter to one from a friend of mine in Skibreen, a nurse, to tell us that there was a terrible disaster in Bantry. She thought Tim was here with me and she was letting us know. So that's how I heard about the disaster. 
The fire has been burning for 15 minutes now, with fuel and oil beginning to leak from the ship. The sea around the Betelgeuse and around the jetty where Tim Kingston and his colleagues are located is now on fire. Flames dance on the surface of the sea, yet it's almost 10 to 1 in the morning when dispatcher John Connolly returns to the watchtower, sees the fire and raises the alarm. Gulf oil pump man Brian McGee recalls hearing about the fire for the first time. Ship was in fire. And the minute I heard that, because of our fire training, I ran out the door straight away to the Land Rover, because the Land Rover was parked on the hill. And my biggest concern was, at that point in time, would the Land Rover start? Because the engine was gone on her. She was a wreck. It's just after 1am and the fire is now getting out of control. By this stage, some of the French crew have climbed down ropes from the ship and made it down onto the jetty with Tim Kingston and his colleagues. More have been cut off in different sections of the boat as the fire rages in the middle section of the ship. Tim Kingston and the men are stuck on the huge concrete jetty which contains 22 platforms known as Dolphin 1 through 22. Dolphin 22 is where a security hut is. It's at the bow, the front of the ship. The men have to run to this, to the end of the jetty, but the wind is blowing the flames directly at them. They double back and try to get to the stern, the rear of the ship, to Dolphin 1, which had access to the sea, but on this jetty, the gangway has been removed, meaning that the men can only get off the jetty by boat. But the two tugs, which should have been close by, have been moved to the other side of the island. They're trapped. On the jetty, Tim Kingston has a walkie-talkie and is calling for help. John, send boats quick. Tim, she is on her way at full speed. Some of the French crew jump off the sides of this huge oil tanker and down into the cold Atlantic in Bantry Bay. The speed at which everything is now happening is frightening. The fire is spreading through the middle section of the Betelgeuse and at approximately six minutes past one, the unthinkable happens. A massive explosion takes place on board the Betelgeuse. Flames leap hundreds of metres into the air on all sides. The sonic boom is reportedly heard up to 100 kilometres away in Cove. And as debris slowly begins to shower back down to sea and on the island, it becomes clear that the back of the ship has broken. And this is an explosion unlike anything ever witnessed in Ireland. What's not yet clear is where the French crew are, or if Tim Kingston and his colleagues managed to get off the jetty, which was in the direct hit line of the explosion. Local resident Tim O'Leary recalls his father and brother standing near the vessel at this point. So when the big explosion came, they were actually, for want of a better word, they were stunned, they were knocked to the ground by the explosion. And I remember my father telling me that they were just looking at each other and they had lost kind of a sense of time and a sense of everything. It was a very strange sensation, I suppose, a shockwave or something from, from the main explosion. My most frightening memory that night was standing at the bottom of the stairs. When the big explosion came and it shook the house, it shook our house. But my father came back when he got when he came back to his senses and he came in the back door and they were standing at the bottom of the stairs just in front of him and he came in and he said, come on, we're going and we're going now. And we just, you know, we knew that if, if the fire came ashore, we'd be, there was no hope for anybody. We'd all, we'd all be killed. What I do remember is the zinc sheds in the yard, the farm buildings, asbestos hitting from the explosion. It was like little bits of rain, but you'd hear them hitting off the sheds after the explosion, this asbestos falling on the on the sheds, and that was very frightening. It reminded me a bit of the last days of Pompeii or something. You saw all this stuff falling on the sheds, and it was, that was fairly frightening. And, like, and you would see the, the stuff hitting the air and kind of sizzling when it hit the ground. 
Local resident John O'Shea witnessed events from Bantry. He spoke on a programme made after the tragedy. The noise was like a continuous thunderstorm. It was terrifying. You could feel vibration all around the place. The light, there was a, a red, a desperate red glow, kind of a yellowish red glow, and that was there. And now and again, you'd get this ball of fire lighting up in the sky, and it was brighter than any sun we'd have in the finest day in summer. And the whole area would be brilliantly lit up. It was terrifying. And this echo of thunder. In the West Lodge Hotel in nearby Bantry, a dance has taken place. Eileen O'Shea is on management duty at the hotel at the moment of the explosion. On the night of the disaster, I was in junior management here at the hotel. I have a clear recollection of the night because then the same night was a Sunday night and there was a dance at the hotel. And so at, I'd say, approximately 1.15, somewhere around that time, you know, we heard the tremendous bang. And uh, the chandeliers in the main seafield room, actually some of the chandeliers dropped to the floor. And the Hanny Murphy's bar right underneath us as well, some of that building shook, so... I suppose we knew something bad was after happening, but we had no idea what it might be. Brian McGee is one of five men on Willie Island, with a burning ship that's 400 metres away and the sea on fire. His job now is not the ship, but to keep the huge oil tanks on the island cool, because if they catch fire, not only will they devastate the entire island, they may even destroy the town of Bantry itself, home to over 2,000 people. So we went to the control room. The control room is a very high point. You, you'd see very clearly what was happening. John Connolly and Lord Emerson was there too, and John Connolly was the control um, dispatcher. They kind of uh, think that he was in charge of everything, but he wasn't. He would be very powerless over what was actually happening out on the jetty. It was a third of a mile away. So I was looking out, standing, looking out at the, the whole situation. In not short length of time, past the fire station, which would be in line with the jetty. Not a major fire. It would appear to be, was no out of control. The fire siren in Bantry Town is sounded. My name is Brendan. I don't know I was a fireman with Bantry Fire Brigade. So on the night I was staying with my mother at the time, my mother woke me and said the siren was going off, there's a fire. So I got up and got ready and she said it must have been Muffin O'Connor's because there was a sawmills at that direction where the smoke is coming from. So I headed off down, got down to the fire station, was told Widdy was gone up. So, so there was pandemonium, as you can imagine. We were actually in there at the end, Widdy and myself, we were hunting. And we actually were looking at the tanker. We, we even were saying, you know, geez, what a rusty ball of, of ship that is. It was just a ball of rust. You know, we were commenting on it. Little did we think that we'd be, that I would be back in that night. We were there on the pier for, oh, maybe three quarters of an hour because they were trying to organise boats and Dunman we were called, Skibberine were called. So you had three fire brigades coming to the scene of this disaster. It was pure panic, pandemonium. Fireman Brendan O'Donoghue and other fire brigades from Cork are waiting on Bantry Pier for boats to bring them across to Woody Island. We eventually started heading out towards the island. We had uh, the hoses and the boat and the pumps and whatever. There was two boats, I think, with Dunman Rescue and ourselves. Oh, every few minutes there'd be an explosion and there'd be fire going up three, four, five hundred feet into the air. So there was no word on the boat going out. We were head to the, we were like, you know, what's in front of us? Lambs to the slaughter, I was thinking to myself. 
the wind being from northwest, it was actually blowing the flames right into the island, the north of the island, all the way along the coast. Blaze, you know, like flames 100 feet high, you know, like this was maybe, maybe 3 o'clock, half past 2, 3 o'clock when we were at this point. So we got to the firing station and got the fire engine out and got things ready and we were sent different directions. Imagine, you know, there was only 30 firemen, part-time firemen, to deal with this tragedy. Brian McGee is still on the island, trying to keep the massive oil tanks cool. The crude oil is very slow to ignite, but when it does ignite, it has power. You must think of the rocket that goes to the moon, where the fuel comes from. It comes from that raw material. So you have every chemical under the sun burning. Both on the jetty and on the ship, it's unlikely now that any of the 50 souls there, including Tim Kingston, are still alive. At the West Lodge Hotel, the dance has been stopped. The public go to Bantry Pier to see what's happening, but Eileen O'Shea is on the phones. Communication was the biggest problem because like, we were working on one of these very old-fashioned uh, switchboards at the time that people wouldn't have any recollection of now. And so we were working on nine lines into the hotel and like trying to get lines in and lines out and people queuing from phone calls and the press were ringing from all over the world. So like it was, you know, people in France were actually only hearing it on the radio. I, I spoke to one family from um, France there when they were over here a couple of years ago and they said actually that they heard it on... The, the lady herself, her husband, was on the tragedy and she heard it on the way to school with her two children. She heard there was a disaster in Bantry Bay and she thought, oh my God, it, he's definitely on that. While firemen are on their way from the mainland, on the island, Brian McGee and his colleagues are continuing the crucial task of trying to keep the tanks cool. If they catch fire, not only would the entire island be devastated, but the town of Bantry is at risk and millions of tonnes of crude oil will seep into the sea and ignite. They've got to keep these huge oil tanks cool, but a broken Land Rover and a fire engine is all they have to go with. Brian grabs the equipment and attempts to get water onto the tanks. Tank 5 is the nearest oil silo to the burning ship and the one most likely to go up first. Yeah, actually, there was a, a fog nozzle on the hydrant. How I opened that, I don't know, because I opened it with my bare hands. My hands were so sore and burnt. I'm trying to sink into it and hold it, and the temperature, I don't know, it was over 1,000 degrees, I believe. It had to be when it singed our clothes on us. Generators are powering the pumps they're using, and it's crucial that they keep running. If they lose power, they lose water. And if they lose water, it's all over. That was a substation. I was afraid then that that would overheat and could trip the generators. You see, if they went, we had no water. Tim O'Leary, whose sister was the first to see the fire, is now leaving the island. So we just, just everybody decided to get into their boats and get to the mainland. And it was very traumatic because we, a lot of people in the island are farmers and we had to run and let our cattle in and, you know, we were afraid of our livestock and everything, what would happen. So we just got everybody here. Had, we were lucky, it was a very calm, cold night. And it was very small, everyone in the island at those times, there was no ferry, everyone had their own 17 foot, 8 foot punt with an outboard motor. And we all just packed into our boats and we headed for the mainland and I suppose one of my biggest... Another memory that stands out for me that night was like it was like a flotilla of all boats leaving at the same time. And you could see people, like it was one half one in the morning, you know, and you could see people and you could see people talking in the boats. It was like it was like data. The flames were so high in the sky. Brendan and his firefighting colleagues now arrive at the pier at Whitty Island. These nine firefighters are the first on the scene. It's now 1.55 a.m., but it's not safe to leave the pier or travel anywhere near 
the Betelgeuse or the jetty. So we arrived at the, the jetty outside at, at the Asken jetty. That's the jetty where you come from Bentry Pier out onto the island. So we arrived there and we were met there by Michael O'Sullivan and he says he can go over to the other side. The, the tank was on the north side, we were on the south side. It is too dangerous. So with that we took the gear out of the boat and we were waiting and I'd say every minute there was an explosion and fire and the one thing that'll stick in my mind I suppose is the noise of the fire, the roaring of it. Just something unbelievable now. Burning oil, it's like, if you could imagine a frying pan burning now, about 10 million of them, you know, roaring now, like. Because the oil was just, the oil was pumping out of the tank and it was coming up into the water because oil is lighter than water and it was feeding the fire. Every one of those tanks covered an acre. They are 70 feet high. Each one held 80,000 tonnes of oil and there was five, those five tanks were facing the fire. So we said we'd make a way over anyway, so we made a way over and as soon, soon as we got to the point where we could see what was in front of us, we said there was no, no one could survive this because the tanker was, at this stage was, the bow was up in the air, the stern was up in the air, the middle of it was down, there was, the whole water was on fire. Smoke was actually coming in that time, the wind was northwesterly and it was actually coming in over the town, the smoke. I mean, it was something frightening now, like, and, um, we were told that we were sent up to the tank and um, the northeast of the island. And I'd say, I'd honestly say, you, you'd light a cigarette that night after the tank. Now, with daylight, the search for bodies begins. That day, 13 bodies will be found, seven on the north shore of the island and six in the vicinity of the jetty. The bodies are numbered 1 to 13. Brendan and his colleagues battled throughout that Monday. The tanks are eventually secured as the fire finally begins to abate and Brendan O'Donoghue is allowed home for a few hours. We were there all that day. My parents, the rumour around the town at the time was that all the firemen were killed. There was no mobile phones. Like my mother heard it, my father heard it. So they were amazed to see me. They were amazed to see me walking in the door. We were called back towards morning and eventually the fire died away from the, the, the coast. We were sent out searching for any casualties or whatever we could find. So We found bodies floating into the shoreline and we found one, there was one body actually up in the rocks. He never hit the water. That was, he was blown clean from the, the boat or the jetty. Mary Kingston recalls that the morning after the fire, her son Michael, who had celebrated his fourth birthday the day before with his dad, got up early. And uh, the children got up very early the next morning. And I knew when Tim didn't get in touch with me, that he was either severely injured somewhere, but I really did believe that Tim had been killed, you know? I remember the next uh, morning, um, all the balloons in the house and, the, and the, were still up, and, and my mother sat me down and told me that, that Daddy had gone to heaven. 
I went outside and took some balloons and sent them up to make it make my father happy uh, in heaven. That's my recollection, and you can imagine the state that my mother was in, but where she found the strength to do that, and subsequently in her unbelievable and indefatigable positivity in life, given something happening like that, I do not know. And what she had to go through in terms of the torture that everyone was put through mentally in the aftermath. Um, the first thing I did was go down to the Tato box that my aunt had given the day before with um, lots of, she has a pub in Goline, bottles of orange and chocolate and raiding that um, very early in the morning. And I remember the um, strange people in the house. My grand-aunt was there and people that shouldn't be there and that was the first indication I got that something was seriously wrong and then it was after that that my mother sat me down with my sister and, and explained to us what had happened. The Betelgeuse sank on Tuesday the 9th of January at around 1.40. It will be another two weeks before rescuers will be able to approach the wreck due to clouds of toxic and flammable gas surrounding it. A further eight bodies are discovered at Dolphin 22 on the jetty. Three are found outside the security hut and five inside the hut. These victims are numbered 14 to 22. We spent three days out there then. We used to come home in the evening about eight, nine o'clock and go again the following morning, looking for casualties and making sure everything was all right. The local Gulf Company workers who died were David Warner, aged about 40, who was pilot on duty at the time of the disaster. He was a married man with three children. James O'Sullivan, aged 25, from Bantry, who was married only five weeks ago. Charles Brennan, aged 24, a single man from Glengariff. Cornelius O'Shea from Glengariff, a married man. Liam Shanahan, in his late 30s, married and living at Ballydee Hob. Timothy Kingston, in his mid-30s, married and from Crookhaven. And Dennis O'Leary, in his mid-40s, married and from Borlan in Bantry. Darkness now hides the thick cloud of... In all, 50 people died that night. 42 French nationals, seven Irish and a British man. One of those who died was a French woman called Mrs. Lazelle. She had joined her husband, the ship's baker, for the Christmas holidays. Their two children lost both parents on that night. The 51st victim was Yap Poles, a Dutch diver who died during the recovery operation later in 1979. Tim Kingston's body was recovered eight months later in August of 1979. Michael has Tim's bunch of keys that were found in his pocket and we have them upstairs somewhere the keys of the house at the time. After the fire, Taoiseach Jack Lynch visited Witty and was already being asked about a tribunal of inquiry. Are you satisfied that sufficient precautions have well, been no, taken I'm I, the... I can make no comment. I know nothing except what I heard on the news bulletins, as I said. And until such time as I get some information, uh, I couldn't possibly make any comment. And even then, I'm not technically equipped to make any detailed comment about the effectiveness or otherwise. Are you thinking of an inquiry, a public inquiry? I'd have, again, uh, there will have to be a form of inquiry, but what form it takes, I cannot say at this stage. 
tribunal was indeed established. The tribunal findings published on the first anniversary, January the 8th, 1980, found that the seriously weakened hull of the vessel was the result of deliberate decisions taken at different times by the management of Total. It found that had Gulf maintained escape craft close to and in sight of the jetty, it's probable that the lives of the crew and those on the jetty would have been saved. It found that had access to the sea from Dolphin 1 been maintained, it's possible that some lives may have been saved. And it found that the failure to establish a harbour authority meant that Gulf was essentially left to establish their own bylaws. All the while, as families suffered, Total blamed Gulf for an absence of safety, while Gulf blamed Total for running a faulty vessel. One reporter who covered the tribunal was a qualified barrister who had made a career move and joined RTE as a reporter for the Frontline TV programme. Mary McAleese, former president of Ireland, but in another life I was a journalist. I was in Bantry um, on the day that the document was published. The tribunal also focused partly on the role of John Connolly. He had said that he was in the watchtower that night when the fire broke out. The tribunal found that in fact he was not. Gulf and Total had behaved abominably. No doubt put a lot of pressure on him too. We'll never know, you see, that, that side of the story we'll never know. Was pressure put on him uh, not to tell the truth about the night? Had Gulf and Total behaved differently at the beginning and empowered him to speak the truth? Well, things might have been very different. But they didn't. They behaved appallingly. And he had given evidence that he was in the dispatch uh, office that, that evening, that he had never left it. The tribunal said he did leave it. Now you have the, 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 a number of players. You have very, Gulf and you have Total. You have 50 people dead. And you have a dispatcher um, whose job it is to over... Is to, he's the overseer of safety on the island. I mean, he's the person who, you know, hits the siren, hits the alarm bells and lets everybody know if there's going to be trouble. But he's the guy who keeps watch. So you have this very human person on the night saying one thing that turns out not to be true. Everybody rushing to protect themselves from the avalanche of blame that's coming, but also, I think, the avalanche of really very significant civil and possibly even criminal charges. Certainly in any other country, there might very well have been criminal charges brought, effectively a form of corporate manslaughter. So they were very active, can I say at the beginning, in, in spinning the story. And it was repeated throughout the report. It was always an accident waiting to happen. Indeed, in the immediate aftermath of the tragedy, a representative of Gulf Oil Management had visited Witty. Are you satisfied with the level of uh, precautions which are taken at the terminal by Gulf? Oh, very definitely. Uh, we're, uh, of course, employing all the latest methods to, uh, to, prevent, uh, fires. to prevent fires. Uh, we, at the time that the incident occurred, um, all of those measures went into effect. We, of course, had a dispatcher uh, in the control room uh, who is in a position to bring all of those things to bear, including automatic foam equipment on the jetty, um, mechanisms for keeping the tanks cool and, and watering them down to avoid um, uh, any spread of the fire. Of course, all the normal... If Whitty had happened in other parts of Europe, for example, it's quite possible that senior management and Total and Gulf could have been charged with, with, with criminal conduct. 
with with doing or not doing, uh, acting or omitting, even over periods of years, and and in so, and in so acting or so omitting, creating the circumstances that on that night caused those deaths. It seems to me that going back to Gulf and Total in the case of Witty, the state had, in a sense, at that time, the state had made it easy for Gulf to take shortcuts and for Total to take shortcuts because they knew that when they arrived, when there was never going to be anybody come to inspect the jetty. There was never going to be anybody come and say, excuse me, where's the rescue tug? Let me check the, um, the equipment and to put put people's lives at risk in order to save money. Because that's really, you know, that's what Witty's all about. Total did it, Gulf did it. There are consequences for that. And they aren't just in that year and they aren't just after the report. They're forever, they're forever, they're for life. There are people who go to their graves broken because of the loved ones they've lost. There are also people who go to their graves frustrated and angry that massive um, international concerns like Gulf and Total could try and make little of them, you know? Make so little of them that they would lie about an event like that or try to cover it up in some way or not just be open and decent about it. You know, it's the absence of decency. Of course, no tribunal finding will ever address the pain caused by the loss of a loved one. Michael Kingston... Tim's son devoted his life to safety at sea and to honouring the memory of his dad. He became a maritime lawyer in later life. Well, I mean, I'm now 46 years of age and my father died when he was 31. But, you know, he's still there somewhere, I always think. And he um, was a, to me, he's a very very old person, um, even though I'm much older than him now. Um, and he was a, a kind, hard-working, intelligent, safety-conscious, well-trained, lovable person, well-respected. An incident like Witty will leave scars way into the future on those who suffered loss and on those who witnessed directly what happened. As years went by, you know, you, don't, you wouldn't talk about it. I, I, I know I had nightmares over it for a couple of years, it was actually the fire roaring that used to wake me up. And I hope to God the lights will never be seen again. But uh, going back to the firemen, you know, it was a great trial, just not because myself was there, but it was a great trial of them going in that night. Because I, without a shadow of a doubt, the town would have went up. Because we were the only ones there to try and do something, you know, to keep them cool. We were only like young fellas. There was no one else to turn to, it was only us. We were there to start it out. But anyway, thank God we got out of it. Brian McGee says he's been virtually ignored by authorities since the night of Witty. They don't want to give us any credit for anything. They've downplayed it all the time. They've done, I've written to all the politicians. There is compensation there. I was pushed aside, passed from one to the other. And I know now that's what they do that you'll go away eventually. You shut up. That's why people don't get better. And, and I suffered a lot. I had the anger, the resentment, the vengeance, 
all due to hurt. And it took me years to get over it, to get the grace to let it go. My whole system broke down, mental and physical. Mary Kingston had a prolonged wait for her pension. I didn't get my widow's pension until August, eight months after my husband's death. It may be only a small thing, but it was a major thing to me that I wasn't thought about. I refused all medication. Um, I, would, I saw it all through the way Tim would want me to see it through. Michael Kingston's life profoundly changed as a result of the events of the 8th of January 1979. It's hard to pin down precisely how life changed. We, we, we just got on with life. We had wonderful, wonderful aunt and my uncle Paul were close by and they were always there and my grandfather. We also lived with my wonderful uncle, my father's brother who had Down syndrome, Uncle Michael. And we, we got on with life um, in, in, a, in a positive way and, and a lot of that is down to my mother because as a child, you, you, I, I assume that you react to the spirit of those around you. And if those around you are falling apart, then life can become very difficult. You can descend into a quagmire of, of mental problems and, and, and so on and so forth. And I think that's well known in, in, in all types of tragedies. And, uh, but we didn't have that problem because of the enormity of the strength of, of my mother and my, my uncle and my aunt and my grandfather. So we had a normal childhood, as normal as, as can be, and a wonderful childhood, obviously. Um, my father wasn't there and, and we were very conscious of the fact that he was still there somewhere. And we prayed every morning, going to school and, and, and at night. The relatives of the victims of the tragedy are going to the High Court to have the death certificates changed to reflect that they were unlawfully killed. They also want a fulsome apology from the state which they've never received. Meanwhile, Whitty Island is operational again. The smell of crude oil pervades the air. Michael works as a consultant with the United Nations International Maritime Organization. He's determined to do all in his power to achieve one thing, that Whitty, or the likes of it, anywhere in the world, should never be seen again. That's the reality of life, I'm afraid, my friends. That's why you go to the well of your being. To, to make sure that people's lives aren't wiped off the face of the earth and covered up, and then we do nothing about it as a nation and allow other people to die. Because we know what the results are. And I wasn't going to allow that to continue to happen to anyone else. Simple as that. Fire in the Sky was a documentary in one production from RTE in Ireland. It was narrated by Donal O'Herlihy and produced by Michael Lawless and Donal O'Herlihy. The documentary makers would like to thank everyone who helped in the making of this documentary. Until next time, thanks for listening.